Hey everyone and welcome back to The Deep Dish, a space where voices will be amplified, respected, listened to, and where the only requirement is that your belief and actions do not hinder the progression of the disenfranchised. It is my hope that my conversations with these incredible guests will be the sweetest treat in your day. Let's get to it. Welcome back to The Deep Dish, everyone. I am Alyssa Lewis, your host, and I'm excited to introduce today's guest. I've been trying to think back to when I first met Dominique, and I think it's a particular blessing because neither of us are good with dates. Um, And so (laughs) if I tell her a date, she's like, sure. Um, I know that um, she came to preach at my dad's church in 2014. And so I'm guesstimating that we met around 2013, but that even seems, that doesn't seem long enough. But again, I'm, if I tell her that date, she's going to be like, sure. Um, (laughs) Dr. Robinson earned a BA in government and psychology from Georgetown University, a master's of divinity and Masters of Theology, both from Candler School of Theology of Emory University. It's going to, hold on, this is going to be a, a long one. And a Doctor of Ministry degree in Gospel and Culture from Columbia Theological Seminary. She's continuing her education, earning another doctorate at Christian Theological Seminary in the world's first African-American preaching and sacred rhetoric PhD program. And if that wasn't enough, she's the founder of iHomiletic. Dominique, I am so excited to have you on the deep dish today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I want you to know that I am currently now going through my Facebook page to see when I first preached at your dad's church, so I can I can pretend to say I know a date. <laughs> well, we looked it up because I know you preached on Valentine's Day, and we, Dad was trying to figure out when you first came out. I was like, "Well, we have Women's Weekend uh, pictures," and he saw that it was 2014. But I can't remember. It was 14. Wow, 20- is that the one I had on this yellow shirt <laughs> and I was praying? Yes. Oh wow! I don't know why I felt that was like. 2000. That's what I'm but saying. It couldn't have been because I wasn't in seminary. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, it's oh. wild to think of. I was like, hmm. that seems way too short. But because I, I guess I feel like I've known you for like a thousand years. Um, but welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. The fun part about this is I, people are going to learn how much of a boss this person is. Um, I just can't even describe it to you. Um, Dominique and I are friends, but then I've also worked with her. So I've seen her in two different elements, which I think is super dope. And so Dominique has listened to the podcast and she's done the questionnaire and she's told me that that part was difficult. So I'm going to head into our questions. And so the one question that I love asking people is what was your favorite childhood dessert? Favorite childhood dessert. Hmm. I don't know why I didn't come prepared. I should have known that dessert would have been a question somewhere in our conversation today. Childhood dessert. Now, see, this is the thing right here. (laughs) I'm I'm about to give y'all an answer, and this is about to reveal so much about my life. Y'all, I grew up in an urban context. This is my way of saying the hood. So my favorite childhood dessert was that 25 cent icy we used to get from the bodega it's 25 cents it's mm-hmm. long icy mm-hmm. um 
you know, and me and my cousins and them, and them, that's with uh, an apostrophe, N-E-M, for those of you who are testing um, our intellectual prowess on Deep Dish tonight. Um, that was my favorite childhood dessert because, yeah, my grandmother would give us like a dollar or just give us a bunch of change and we would run and get a couple of those 25 cent ices and my cousins and I would cut them in half and we would split them. Mm. And we, we would do it that way. Now, mind you, I know that's not a succulent dessert or anything, but I looked forward to those, tw- especially in the summertime when it's hot and we just chilling. So it wasn't always after dinner, but it was certainly a dessert that we knew we could enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, I think knowing some of your story, too, it would make sense that it would be you know, your grandmother giving you and your cousins a dollar to go get, you know, this dessert that your story would still come back to your grandmother. And for those who ever get the opportunity to listen, to hear Dominique's story, you'll, you'll see how significant her grandmother was. And I'm definitely going to ask about that. So when you think about that, icy and you think about your grandmother, what, what comes, what comes to mind? So as far as the icy is concerned, I think what's so funny is, it's a simple dessert, right? It really is a frozen Kool-Aid, if we're going to be honest. It's a bunch of sugar and water in some cheap plastic. It, I mean, this was, the, this, was the, this was the predecessor to the Capri Sun, okay? For the things <laughs> out there who don't, you know, you, know, you got to... Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever decided to put juice in a, a foil bag is making money out here on the Capri Suns. So it was, it was rather simple. Um, and growing up the way we did, I don't think I knew that we were poor. Mm. So... Grabbing this 25 cents to buy this icy that my cousin and I were going to rip open with our mouth and split and share um, really speaks to uh, who my grandmother was, right? One, um, she probably set aside these coins to always be able to treat us once a week or however often we did it um, to get the icy, uh, her generosity, her sacrifice, and just the simplicity of who she was. At the end of the day, she wasn't uh, this elaborate, neither one of my grandmothers were, these these elaborate, over-the-top women. Everything was rather simple. It was about love and family and God. And so if I'm going to think about the dessert, um, (laughs) the icy, that's where I am with it. And, you know, whenever I go back to Newark, I actually really do go back and get an Italian hot dog, which is odd because I don't eat beef and pork now, y'all. But I will go and get an Italian hot dog and I will get an icy from the bodega because it's just, I guess, the nostalgia of it all. Um, and I and I can really appreciate it on a hot summer day. Legit. I can be like, 25 cents? This is about to, be, this is about to bless you. Now, you get, I'm getting older now, closer to 40 than I am willing to admit these days. So I'm going to need a bottle of water right after that. I <laughs> see. Because I would be thirsty. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Facts. Yeah, I mean, and so how did how did your grandmothers, Dominique, really shape the woman that you are today? Oh man, I owe um everything, all of who I am really is rooted in my relationship or the presence of both of my grandmothers. And I say that uh they both are uh deceased but are very present as, as current ancestors who I believe guide guide me along my way who are part of my cloud of witnesses currently so um my uh let's let's sorry so there's my mother's mother who I believe practically raised me uh, my mother's mother 
Yeah, both. Let's all right. So both of my parents are one of ten. So they both have nine aunts. And, I mean, I have nine aunts and uncles on both sides. Um, both of their mothers were very much a part of my life. Um, with love and respect, I'll say my parents were not heavily a part of my life. Um, they had their own challenges, particularly my mother. And so her mother stepped in. And so I was raised with my mom's brothers and sisters, like my own brothers and sisters. I call them all by their first name. And so her, my mom's mom was very much like my mom growing up. Um, she was the person taking me back and forth to school. And I was in her house all the time. I thought it was normal. I thought like <laughs> all the grandchildren are over there. And I realized it wasn't during the holidays, like Christmas and stuff. And I had two gifts instead of one. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I'm special y'all. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but my mother's mother certainly played a, a, a big role it, as an adult now I can tell you my idea of marriage my idea of how a wife should be and present herself and uh, be present um, very much is rooted in my mother's mother I mean baby girl I don't know if my grandfather ever saw her with rollers in her hair or in the muumuu that I saw because he would leave for work and she'd be fully dressed and made up and he, wow. while he was at work, she would be back in her moo watching the stories, you know, you know, as the world turned. I know all of them. As the world turned, God in light, bold and the beautiful. I know them all, y'all. What is it? The young and the restless. I have them all. Okay. <laughs> Victor Newman is still alive. How? But anyway, and so um, <laughs> um, the way she just cared for him, he would come home for lunch break. She'd be dressed all over again. He was the person that wow. ate first. Um you know, I would be the kid to go in the refrigerator and be like, I don't see nothing in here. Oscar Mayer bologna was like a luxury. Otherwise, you were having bologna with the red stuff on the side. You had ripped off. Y'all know what I'm talking about from the people from the hood. Go ahead and say something in the chat somewhere, wherever y'all at. Repost and say red stuff on the bologna. Um, I forgot how crazy you are. <laughs> uh, y'all know Lord. the government bologna and cheese. We was out here getting. Well, okay. I don't want to say we. I'm going to say me. Okay. Um, right. So I learned, you know, how to keep a house clean, how to how to how to have pride in even the little bit that you have, um, how to make meals out of. Listen, every crock pot meal I make, I think of my grandmother because I didn't even and see she ain't even had no crock pot back then. She was just simmering slow on the stove. Right. Um. And so I just think about her salmon croquettes, grits, everything. Like I think she's and she was born and raised in Augusta. And so even though I was born and raised in Jersey, um, some of those southern sensibilities and hospitality pieces still come up because of that upbringing and so I think how to be quote-unquote a lady may have come from my mother's mother now the churchy part the do you have the holy ghost part oh listen y'all that came from my daddy's mama um <laughs> and so and let me say this while he is not my biological father he was the father that I knew growing up um as a child he dropped out of high school to take care of my mother knowing that she was pregnant and he was not my father and so his mother and his family took me in very much like their own um and so his mother Della Victoria Smith was the founder and pastor of the church I grew up in Deliverance House of Prayer we call D-Hop for short okay and that's where I learned the Holy Ghost okay it was that grandmother that okay I might not have known she might not have taught me how to cook or you know clean not that she didn't cook or clean she I'm sure she did but I was in church all the time there was no way so I spent the week Monday through Friday with my mother's mother and then I spent the weekend with my father's mother um and we were in shut-ins on third on Fridays and then Saturdays would be like cleaning up the church all day and then Sunday church all, I'm like oh my god I've been on every ministry the choir and I can't sing usher and I'm not I'm not nice 
you know, I, I don't play the drums. Okay. I so basically, you had no choice but to go into preaching. That was just the that was just the avenue that you were heading in. Oh my God! I want to believe in real life that I had a choice, but you might be right. Because what are you supposed to do when you get picked up from school in the church van? <laughs> Have a word. <laughs> Have a word. What are you doing? So yeah. So I mean, and my mother's mother, though I said she taught me very much like about house, like home and living. I Mahalia Jackson was on all the time. The current family Bible I have is from my mother's mother. So they both were very much faith-driven women um, who uh, embodied patriarchy, who, you know, man, head of household, clearly both had 10 children, raising their children. Um, Their husbands were the primary uh, income, you know, coming in. Um, But what I learned from my parents and from my aunts and uncles, they took care of their mothers. There was no, none of them went and got a job and no money didn't go back home to their mother. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I benefited as a child staying in my grandmother's houses because my aunts and uncles, would they will be working and they will be sending a percentage of what they earned back to their mother. And so um, I pray that should I ever become a mother, I become the type of mother where my children would want to take care of me, where that part in uh, Proverbs 31, although it's one of my least favorite scriptures, where it says that your children, you know, praise your name. And they t- I hope that I-, I become a mother of such. And even if I don't birth my own children, that I can be the type of maternal figure to other persons where they feel like I want to sew back into making sure she's well. You decided to go into ministry, <laughs> although we're figuring out that that may have not been your choice. What is it like being a woman in ministry? L- let me start there. <laughs> mm. Being a woman in ministry, I almost want to say it's like being a black person in the United States of America, where you know you have the right to exist, but you are always existing against the grain. Mm. So... Yeah, my relationship with the black church is one of the most abusive relationships I cannot get out of. And one that I know um, is is in the very is in the very fabric of my existence of everything that I'm doing. So serving within the black church and more specifically black Methodism, if I'm going to be honest, it has been a challenge being a woman because people have taken on European patriarchal paradigms gender norms, sexism, patriarchy, and have, you know, let it infiltrate infiltrate the system or the organization or the entity we know to be the church. And so um, if I were less attractive, less educated, less anointed, I don't know if I would have as many problems as I have. Mm. But um, I, I happen to have an hourglass shape for those who are listening out here. Okay. Um you know, and I already heard I got a couple degrees, so I'm not playing with the saints. So you, we can't, what we're not going to do is argue about scripture with me. Now, find somebody else with, you know, less degrees who's going to believe your nonsense about the scripture. Um, but being a woman in ministry is just, it's just, it's always, it's a fine line and a fine dance. I'm always very clear that I can't burn the shit down because I need to keep it alive for another woman coming behind me or another young woman coming behind me. But there have been moments that I'm just like, mm. oh, this is not the way to glory. 
Like this is not the way to heaven. I just I'm just not I'm not convinced of it. And I hope that when they when the scripture says, you know, God has mansions, um, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions. I'm like, I sure hope your mansion is in another house down the street. Right. <laughs> if you make it to heaven. But yeah, so being a woman in ministry, you know, it's it's I, there are moments that I have great pride and I'm excited and I'm I'm elated. Um because I know that there are so many other women who went before me, like a Prathia Hall uh, man, who is who I have to admit is a woman I look up to in ministry like nobody's business. Who, sh- I mean, she shattered glasses as a female preacher and in the educational realm. She was a professor and a teacher at Boston University. So I'm like, so she's per- a person I look up to as an ancestor who's going on before. So there are moments I'm like, I'm standing or I'm living out this legacy. And then there are other moments where I'm just so despondent and broken down when I realize some of our choices about who we choose for women to be involved in particular things is based on how we look. It's based on how much of a threat we are or not. It's based on how we close our sermon. You know, it's based on who we've slept with. And um, uh, I guess that's the nature of the beast. Do you find that your, your experience in the educational realm of theology is similar or different from your experience in the black church? I think there are some similarities. Um, but I will say, I think my age may play a role with some of those things I experienced in the academy because along with the academy, along like the church, there's this idea of seniority and deference. Um, and along the difference though, in the academy is you cannot argue somebody's degree and you cannot, or you can, but you cannot argue somebody's degree, their publication, and their writings. In the church, people can argue anointing and opportunity and seniority all the way. People can give seniority to somebody with age, even though I may have been ordained much longer than them. Um, but in the academy, when did she earn the degree? Who have been her academic advisors and mentors? What has she written? Where has she published? Where has she taught? You cannot fight the CV. Um, but I think that seniority still kicks in based off of age, deference. It's like, well, you are the junior scholar. Who are you paying homage to before you get through? There are gatekeepers in both entities, um, but the politicking of both are very different. I will say that I have been able to use my educational chips uh, to uh, play a different game within the church. So because I have not uh, yielded myself to full-time pastor in a traditional sense, um, the educational clout has given me space to move differently with a, with a respect, um, or as my godfather say, a twisted admiration. Um, you love to hate it and you hate to love it. So, um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's interesting. I'm grateful for my mentors who in their own way have taught me how to navigate both spaces and the very things that could be used against me taught me how to have agency to use those things myself. So you will never be able to use my sexuality or sensuality against me. I will use it myself. Um, you will never be able to use my educational prowess against me. I'll use it myself um, before you can use it. And so it's in, in that way I find it entertaining. But that's because I'm a person who likes puzzles and pieces and, you know, mystery. So let me put the pieces together. But as long as I can... You know, like anybody, as long as I feel like I have control over it, I'm comfortable with it. But the minute I realize somebody else is using it against me um, is when I start to, you know, have some issues with it. So what suggestions would you give for men in the ministry 
of how they can support women in ministry and advocate for them, be an ally to them? You know, I think that men need to ask themselves the same questions. Well, and let me say this before I answer that question. Alyssa, my biggest problems in ministry have been women. So it's it's been people with ovaries who have embodied patriarchy more than people without ovaries. So, but to answer your question, I think men have to ask themselves the question: If this was my daughter, my sister, my mother, how would I respond and behave? Um, and I think that helps them process. If my mother, my fa- like one of my female family members who I love dearly and want to protect, said that they were called to the ministry, how would I navigate this differently? How would I be there for them presently? So, you know, listening to us, not trying to mansplain us, allowing our stories to have credit and credence, um, paying us equally. Um, And and, and let me rephrase that. Not even equally. Paying us what we are worth. Because I have been in situations where a man with less degrees has been paid more than me coming to teach something at a church. Now, I ain't going to argue your preachment, but the teaching... You, this man, he's been pastoring 25 years with barely a bachelor's. And I'm coming in with three theological degrees. And you're giving him more zeros than you're giving me because I have ovaries, which is, to me, absolutely ridiculous. Now, if we want to go into the preaching arena, I know things are very different. So in our church, we think about seniority, how long somebody's been preaching, whether they're ordained, all these things. Well, baby, I got them all. Right. <laughs> and so... Ugh. But so ways that men can certainly be supportive, like I said, are paying, you know, what someone is, is worth. And again, realizing that you can't even put a number on somebody's worth. Right. right? But paying what we are worth. Because uh, here's the thing. Even when we're showing up and when before the pandemic, listen, I no man is, is spending the same amount of money a woman is to prepare for a preaching engagement. Not hmm. with haircut, hair, hmm. haircut, makeup. Girdle, okay, because y'all can put, they can wear regular boxers, but I got to put on a good girdle to stand up in your church on the pulpit mm. with these heels, praise the Lord. Um, so all of these things <laughs> need to be considered right. um, as people are coming and sharing. But I think those things, but I think if you ask yourself if this was my sister, my daughter, my mother, my wife, how would I nav- how would I handle this differently? And I think that at least helps you to start personifying or personalizing the quote-unquote issue, even though it's not an issue, a woman in ministry. I think that's how men can be supportive. I think the other thing is men have to be in spaces where there are other men and check them. When you hear women being objectified, address that shit. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm cussing on your podcast. Address that stuff. There is an explicit button I can click, and I'm all for it. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. But, like, they need to check that. You are in a room, and you hear a woman being objectified or belittled or just uh, deduced down to a, a piece of her body or a piece of her, her sound. That's problematic. I, I'm tired of hearing men ask other men, oh, give me a, a sister preacher, but I need to know that she can shut it down. For me, that's a masculine rhetorical device. You want somebody who can hoop. I'm not saying women don't hoop, but you're looking for somebody to fit a particular mold when some sisters have solid words who don't close like you think they ought to close. Um, and because you're looking for this, you know, this thing. So I think just checking each other, right? And asking each other the questions like, what's up with that? Why, like, why is that even, you know, set up like that? So I think that's how that helps. But as I have said before, my biggest challenges in ministry have been other women. They're, the the reason I'm where I am today um, are because men opened doors for me and have and stood in the gap and have advocated and who have taken chances and risks on my ministry. I I'm so glad that you brought that back because the whole time you're talking, I'm like, yes, point, great, got it. But I wanted to get back to that because you know I've I've always wondered about. Preacher church hurt. 
right? Um, and I think um, a lot of that does come from from other women. And so how do you navigate those spaces? Yeah. Well, see, you know me. Part of my navigation is I will go silent for months <laughs> to rehab myself so that I can continue to function. Um, and so my silence for, you know, physician heal thyself is a lot of how I personally navigate it. And I try not to take stuff personal. I, I, I really don't believe um, some of the attacks that I have had from other women in ministry and just women in general were because I was Dominique. It's because they didn't get what they wanted or um, what perception, right? So I think it's funny how we all, we, many people assume a woman ascend, ascends to a particular position and you're immediately like, who does she sleep with to get there? Huh? As if the woman is just not credentialed enough to get there. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty, you know what? I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I'll get in trouble, but that means I would be giving somebody authority to even place me in trouble. So I don't care. So in, in our church, in the Amy Zion church, um, the trouble that I've had with most of the women in the church really has been that they were the ones trying to be inappropriate with particular men in my life. They were the ones throwing their draws and offering plates and in text messages, DMs and things of that nature. Um, and from their perspective, I was getting the attention that they wanted. And so they made the assumption that I was the side piece or the additional chick when in truth, they were seeking that themselves. And so much of the trouble that I received really wasn't even because, like I said, I didn't think it was personal. It's because they were seeking some sort of attention. They wanted some sort of uh, affection or, you know, favoritism. And it seemed to them that I was getting what they were desiring. And they assumed that I was receiving that because I was willing to be a whore like them. And I was not. Um, and so uh, I have taken lots of hits in silence. I've rolled with it, kept the punches, because I do believe that the truth will speak for itself at the end of the day. Um, I believe that when the smoke clears and when all... Uh, things, you know, kind of drift away that the truth will, will come out and speak for itself. So my thing is fighting a lie is, is, is worthless energy, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And so right. I've been hurt. I've been hurt. I've cried. I've screamed. I've vented. Um, a few women I did address directly. Mm -hmm. Like, because one of the, one of my, I think one of my characteristics that is um, a blessing and a curse is that I'm loyal to a fault. And so even when I know you are absolutely wrong, I don't ever think it's my responsibility to put you out there. But let me say this. It's also happening in the educational world, too. And so I'm finding myself um, choosing to be silent, not being silenced like Oprah asked Megan, uh, <laughs> choosing to be silent uh, about things because I don't believe anybody else's toxicity should change my integrity. Mm, um, and that I part. believe that people... Mm -hmm. I do believe people will reap what they sow. And so when none of us should, should throw rocks, when we, we all live in glass houses and none of us have lived perfect lives. Um, but I find it very interesting um, when we profess to be good people or Christians and yet uh, our behavior and our lifestyles are not lining up with that and we have no problem attacking others when our slips are showing. And so there is a scripture where uh, Saul, as we know, he was after David and David knew <clears throat> and Saul went into a cave to relieve himself and literally to move his bowels. And David was in there and he had the opportunity to kill him and he chose not to. 
that is how I guide my life. I'm very clear that I have the information necessary or the information that could harm or destroy someone's career, ministry. Um, but I am like David. It's not if God wants you dead, God will have to do God God's self. I don't want to be the person to bring you down. But I ain't gonna lie to you, Alyssa. It has been hard not tapping the person on the shoulder saying I could have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think I think it's been hard as a friend, right? I think watching your friend go through something and be like, "Hello, hello," you know, you you want to be the person to be like, "Hand me the knife." Um, but I think what people don't see is that people don't see how the hits hurt, right? Mm. And it's none of their business um, to see how the hits land. But I, th- I think from my perspective, when I w- when things, when rumors or things would come up, right? I feel like people would continually just throw them at you because they felt you could take it. Do you know what I mean? It felt that way. It felt like there was always something coming up. And, and the one thing that I kept asking myself is, why does she continue to preach? <laughs> what what there's no amount of like harassment and like because at some points that's what it was right Uh, of vitriol being spewed at me that I want to continue to do this job that I want to continue to do this this calling and so one of the things that I've I've always wanted to ask you is why why do you keep preach? Why do you keep? What keeps you preaching? What keeps you in this environment? Though it has its talk, you know, it's, at times it can be extremely toxic. I um, man, in some ways I'm gonna say I don't know, but then I don't know how true that is. So I don't know myself without preaching, um, and even when I have tried to not preach. I preach. And so I think I keep preaching because it's who God has called me to be. Um, And then I think, you know, my absolute favorite people in the world are Beyonce and RuPaul. Uh, And so Beyonce uh, says on one of her songs, the best revenge is her paper. Um, And I have decided that my best revenge is to keep showing up. Because if your efforts were to silence me um, and to break me, they didn't work. It hurt. And I'm grateful for people like you, your entire family, um, my godfather, even now in his absence, my godmother in her absence, um, my mentor, Dr. Teresa Fowl Brown, um, my growing village of people, Sharika Newton, Reginald Sharp, Bree uh, Sharp, uh, Veronica, who, I mean, who can see when I'm broken. Give me the safe space to be broken. Go, be broken, girl. Cry. Be hurt. Be angry. Tell us who you want to kill. Ask us for the gun. Be dramatic. You know, do whatever you need to do. Get over it. And uh, we will cover you until you are back in the space where you can stand tall. Um, and my friend Monica, because um, I feel like y'all give me the space to do it. And then are my number one cheerleaders when I'm back together. Like, now, mind you, I'm back together because y'all have added some pieces. Okay, girl, you ain't eating. We're going to make sure you're eating. Girl, you ain't, you you, you know, you you don't, you can't find the words to pray, so we're praying. Um, we You you feel like you can't do it. We're going to encourage you. You're in this doctoral program. We're sending you this book. Um, and when you show up, we all show up, you know. Um, and I'm grateful, like I said, for brothers 
and men in ministry who have stepped in. Like I said, Reginald Sharp, Charles Goodman, Howard John Wesley, Freddie Haynes, um, Stephen Green. I mean, have stepped in as brothers who, who in some ways become my front line, you know, who, who will stop it. Um, and in Zion, you, oh man, I, I, Titus Thorne, uh, Coloma Smith, Elgin Morrison, um, you already know your dad, Darren Jaime, who have stepped in. God, and, and God knows I miss Kenneth U. James. Ooh, man. Just people who stepped in to, to, to do things and to be in place when I, and Malcolm Bird. Okay, listen, I, I can't even go into how much Malcolm <laughs> Bird has stepped in. I can't oh, wait to have him on man. here. <laughs> oh, my God. Listen, when he's here, y'all, just be prepared to laugh and clown. And please have your scotch and henny or uh, and a cigar when you're ready to listen <laughs> to uh, Malcolm Bird on the line. But, you know, people who, who just step in and care. And so I have I have learned to lean into my village. Um the pandemic taught me to start saying when I needed help, um, to be okay, not being superwoman. But I keep preaching because there is something about getting back together and getting in that pulpit and walking up to, not even before I say a word, I'm talking about the moment of standing at the podium and just seeing the microphone and knowing you're about to preach. There's something about that where in my mind, I feel like my superhero cape is flying in the wind mm. and I'm standing there and um, I, I feel like, uh, so here's another thing you guys are learning about me. I love Marvel comics. I love, love superheroes. Them. So in my mind, I feel like every time I stand at that podium, y'all have taken the time to get all the bullets out, mend me back together and put this superhero cape back on. And now I'm standing and those bullets are now bouncing off of me while I'm standing up there. What's sickening though is despite all of the attacks, the drama, the, all of that stuff, yo, I'm preaching this word to heal you too. Despite the fact that you had the knife that you tried to stab me with. Um, and so, but I'm very clear I'm not the first woman in ministry who would have experienced this. I won't be the last. I pray that it gets lessened and not just in ministry, but in higher education, any woman in leadership, as Kamala Harris says, she eats nose for breakfast. You know, I had the privilege of serving on Stacey Abrams campaign. I watched, you know, um, teens strategize against her. Wow. I watched um, people who you thought were in your camp. So for those of you who are listening, if you have not watched, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah or Billie Holiday versus the United States of America. Listen, y'all need to watch who's in your camp because most times the attacks are coming from within. But David said it was good for me that I had been afflicted. And really, David even said, had it been an enemy, I might have been better. But because it came from home mm. is why it hurt so much. And so I'm just grateful that God has brought me to a place in a season where now I don't question people in my village. I know who they are. I'm not questioning if my attack is coming from within. I'm very clear that if the attack is coming, it's coming externally. And the only internal pain that I will ever experience is if I lose one of them. Mm. You mentor women, which I love. Um, do, you, do you have any male mentees? Mentees, yes, I do. I do. Jonathan uh, um, Moore, who is now pastoring in, in, in the Atlanta area, He's certainly one. I used to consider Dominique Lester one, but he now grown, so he can just be whomever he is. <laughs> I'm editing that out. <laughs> that name, that name is Voldemort. <laughs> we don't mention that on this no. podcast. 
but I, I do like male mentors. And my students, Brandon Woolley and Shedrick Johnson, who've come through, and Cloney Ambrose and Jawan Drew, students who've come through um, Wiley College, um, who have, I'm blessed and honored that they would even consider me a mentor. Uh, some of them have come from churches that didn't even believe in women in ministry. Wow. They now are like, that's still a thing. Dr. Robinson has to be, it's still a, a major thing. A major thing. You know, you're currently the dean of chapel there. What's the, what's that like? Um, so a dean of chapel, man, I think that means so many things in so many different places. Um, but for me, it says a lot about a young millennial woman in the role of leadership as like the authority, the faith authority for a campus, which says a lot. Um, the school has had chaplains before. The difference in my role as a dean of chapel means I also serve on faculty. I'm also as an, uh, serve as an administrator. Um, and so obviously, like you said, it goes beyond preaching in the pulpit, but going into religious life programming for everyone, anybody connected to the Wiley community. Marshall, Texas is a small town compared to where I've come from. And so you become, you're almost this mega church in your own city, but you're a female pastor, which in East Texas is like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Um, and a young female pastor who is not in a role all the time my <laughs> god um who happens to wear makeup and lashes every now and then <laughs> um oh man we're pushing it here so i have enjoyed being uh the dean of chapel um what i've enjoyed most is being able to see those aha light bulb moments with my students or other persons but mostly with my students when we're talking about scripture and inherited because i feel like we all had this inherited faith we received this tradition in faith and being able to ask questions for them to have these aha moments to realize it's okay to not know or it's okay for it to be a gray area it's okay to evolve and so my ethos uh for teaching and preaching and sharing with them is i want to help you build your toolbox so that when you have to make a decision, you know what tools to choose and you make the best decisions for you. But I can't tell you what decisions to make. I can only guide you. Um, just because I feel like faith is radically contextual and everything's not black and white. We can say murder is a sin. Sure. But when you put on a uniform and you fight to defend the freedoms of this country, are we going to say that that same murder is a sin? Or if female or another person, but I want to say a female has been raped um, and as a result of her rape is pregnant and she chooses that she doesn't want to live with the fruit of her rape. Um, are we going to say that her choice to have an abortion is a sin? And so what I want to do is give you the tools you need for you to discern what's best for you um, and for you to live in your own light and freedom with God. So that, that's, that's just kind of where I am. So that has been my joy in serving as the Dean of Chapel at Wiley College, just being able to, um, one, have my own aha moments, but two, being able to push the envelope on people's um, narrow understanding of God and God representation. So to add to that, how do you ensure that your chapel ministry is inclusive? Ooh-wee. So my first sermon preached apparently set a mighty tone <laughs> at Wiley College. I talked about queer inclusion, inclusion um, and ableism, which, you know, I'm very passionate about now um, because it's, it's a part of my, my PhD research. I'm looking at what happens when the preacher becomes differently or disabled. And so 
looking at our churches, our our pulpits are not built for people who are handicapped. I mean, how many preachers do we see in a, in a wheelchair? Um, how many podiums are built for a pregnant woman um, or a short person like me? These chairs, I sit up there and my legs are swinging, looking like a kid. But we're just thinking about accessibility. Um, and so for us to preach about a God who's accessible to everyone, but then our buildings are not built in such a way that are accessible to everyone, you know. And so ableism is certainly a part of it. So um, I have been able to highlight these particular isms through my preaching and practices. Of course, we're a part of a system, so I wasn't able to change the podium. I wasn't able to change um, the um, floor planning of, of, of the chapel, but I certainly was able to bring it up and bring it up to cabinet members, and, and, and I report directly to the president. So being able to bring it up to the president, especially around um, inclusion and support for our queer brothers and sisters on campus. And so I've been able to assist with uh, the establishment of support groups for our queer students and communities, um, be on committees to change the language of syllabi and documents around campus to be more inclusive. Um, around gender identification. Um, we're working towards uh, changing the way we identify bathrooms. And so just the, the, that's where I find joy. I get disappointed when I realize the pushback. I mean, I've been in trainings with faculty members who were upset about putting pronouns behind their names on a Zoom call. <laughs> and I'm like, putting a pronoun is not a gay thing. It's for us to help identify and call you the proper pronoun, but that just reminds us of how much more work there is to be done. And so um, that's how I've, I've tried to include it. I've tried in our Bible studies. Oh man, in our Bible studies, we go into deep conversation about some of these things. We spent months on scripture and mental health and wellness, um, mental illness. Um, and so being able to talk through that and st- like stopping my students from super spiritualizing um, depression, um, thinking that it was, it was, you know, a spirit, you know, like these are things that need to be dealt with. You got, you know, and so it's been good to have those conversations, but, and even having those conversations, it pushes me, right? When students ask questions, I'm like, man, I don't know. I gotta look into that. So it's been good. You know, I have a lot of, um, friends within the LGBTQIA plus community and I want to be that Christian that they know that isn't, homophobic and um, that, you know, that, that, that loves, that really follows the teachings of Christ essentially, you know? Um, And so as a, as a preacher, as a, as someone in ministry, can you, can you tell me why why preachers should be trying to be inclusive in their preaching, teaching, um, why the church should, what's, what's the benefit? First of all, for those of us who are of color and black, I don't know how we exclude anybody. Like, I just, I, I have no idea how we would exclude anybody from the fold when we've been excluded simply by the color of our skin. Um, and then for us to be black, female, or young, these have been isms across the board. And so I find it very interesting that we would do that. But to talk about our inclusivity, first of all, well, not first of all, I'm on second of all or third of all, who knows? Fifth of all, let's say fifth of all right now. Fifth of all, um, I also think it begs to differ for us to do some serious study of the scripture. We have been functioning off of poor interpretations of the scripture. If we are very, very honest with ourselves, the Old and New Testament was certainly written in a time where 
what we called apprentices were young men who were sleeping with older men in trades. Um, yeah, that's gay, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what that was? Like, what are we, you know, what are we talking about? Um, and so I just think that with the lack of education, a lack of studying and a lack of compassion is what leads to exclusion. Um, Kelly Brown Douglas writes in one of her books, I believe it's the black church or the black church and sexuality, where she talks about how our exclusion of persons based off of sexual or sexuality is really a European paradigm because it was used to commodify us and to, to as black people treat us as cattle or chattel. And so then we take on that same uh, mentality to other others in our, in our settings. So there's that. But if we're going to talk about God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit then as Trinitarian believers. We talk about God being this all-loving God. How then do we take away from all-loving God? We talk about Jesus who came to set everyone free. When we get to the scripture, it says no Jew, no Gentile, no man, no woman. But then we come back to this divide about being homosexual or heterosexual. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit was gifted to us for us to be a guide in our life to help us and then we negate the ability for the Holy Spirit to function in our lives. And so I think, I don't know, from a sociocultural perspective, from a, 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 a biblical literacy perspective, from a Trinitarian, this is my belief perspective, I think it's just quite um, wrong as an understatement. It, it is, I don't even know the word. It, to me, it's, it's crazy disrespectful to profess the name of Jesus, to be a Christian, and to denounce anyone's existence. With that, what what would you say to someone that's had some church hurt? On one side, I would say, F the church, live your life. And that's not right. On the other <laughs> side, I would say... <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> um, on the other side, I would say, you know, church is a man-made organization. And you will experience hurt. Um, or trials or tribulations or challenges anywhere. Nothing is perfect. So do not allow the pain and the hurt you've experienced from one person or one group or one church to color how the rest of the church, denomination, or the body of Christ behaves and acts. And I say that even with some caution because when I think about the young men who were raped by priests in the Catholic church, I don't know what I would say to convince you to come back to the church. I just want you to know that God is still God mm. um, and maintaining that relationship with God. But I will say that um, we can't let one person or one small group's evil color for everyone. That would be like me saying all white people are the same and I can't stand white people because of slavery. And, you know, I wrestle with that. I do. But I know that it's true. You cannot say you can't let one person speak for the entire nation or the entire ethnicity or the entire organization. And so what I would say to someone who's dealt with church hurt is this. There was only one, now this is churchy, there's only one sufficient sacrifice that can certainly, we were healed by his stripes. Um, and so um, go back and reflect on your relationship with God um, and determine whether or not people should impact that relationship. The other thing is life is not perfect, right? We will not live life without pain or trials or tribulation. How can we take that pain and allow it to serve as a motivator or a piece to inspire us to do uh, greater things? Audre Lorde, um, who is a black feminist 
queer feminist actually, or was, um, she wrote this piece on how women use their anger. And she talks about how the use, first of all, we shouldn't be afraid of our anger and how we should use our anger to move into a place of action and how we shouldn't feel bad for our expressing our anger. The scripture says, be angry and do not sin. But sometimes expressing your anger lets people know your boundaries, your expectations, what you won't tolerate anymore, and keeps them accountable. You can't do this to me anymore. and You really shouldn't be doing it to anybody. So the other piece I will say is this. Um, discern whether or not being silent about your church hurt is more beneficial to you or not. I know I said in this podcast that I've chosen to be quiet for certain things and certain reasons. I don't think that's healthy for everyone. I, I don't know if it's healthy for me. So I think speaking up, telling your story, articulating yourself, holding people accountable is necessary. That's the only way the body of Christ will be better. Dominique, was there ever a time where you wish you would have defended yourself as a woman preacher? I'm not, I don't think so. I think that... I think that my actions have spoken for themselves. I don't think that there was a time I needed to say anything. Mm. Um, I regret not saying saying things in the moment for myself because I went back home and dealt with that, like replaying what I should have said, what I did, all of that. But my actions spoke volumes more than what I could have said in the moment. So, you know, you're talking to somebody who has been accused of sleeping with so many preachers in the Amy Zion church, inclusive of bishops, my own godfather. Um, and so over the years, um, do I wish I should have said something or could have said something? In some moments, I'm like, man, I should have said something. But at the end of the day, it, it to me, it, you know, it doesn't even matter now. I know who I slept with or who I haven't slept with. Um, and, and, and there are preachers who have lied about sleeping with me and have been directly confronted about that. Um, Favorite story. Listen, favorite story as far as, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> as far as i'm concerned in the grand scheme of things none of it even matters mm. I, I, like they are going to be who they are going to be and um and it has no it, no type of indication or where, where i'm going in life it will not change where i'm going my my life is in god's hands and um for those who did lie you wish you had some of this milkshake that bring all the money to god <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> but I but, love it. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think there was a moment I wish I had said something. I think that over time, my life has shown my integrity, my character, and there are people who are eating my dust now mm. for the things that they either said or didn't do. So no, I don't think there's anything I should have said or done different. Tell me about I homiletic. Okay. <laughs> I homiletic, ladies and gentlemen. I homiletic is um, a contemporary method <laughs> of preaching or teaching using social media linguistics and technology. Um, it was my demon project that I was de- doctorate of ministry because uh, I know I say demon so quickly people think a demon. No, that's my first <laughs> doctorate. Thanks. Um, it was research that I did to support the work that I was already doing. I was serving as a youth pastor in several churches and I was discovering the use of technology and social media for engagement with my young people. And it was effective. And I was like, who's written on this? 
What, how else can I do it? And I realized nobody had written on it, particularly for black churches and focusing on the proclamation moment either. And so now in this PhD program, I realized that it's also a methodology. It's my, it's actually my methodology of preaching. Um, when you hear me preaching, I am getting straight to the point. I'm using language of the day. Um, I'm giving you tweetable moments. Um, I'm preaching in such a way that you can see what I'm talking about. You can put yourself in the text. Um, And so that was the method that I was trying to convey to preachers on how to connect to black millennials. But now I know it's a connection for all of us. We want to hear, get to the point. We don't want to be here all day. Um, Make the preaching moment concise, sleek, compact, user-friendly, and always ready for an upgrade. Um, And so iHomiletic is my brainchild. Um, It is a pending book contract. It is my methodology of preaching. Um, It is my brand. Uh, It is my baby. yeah, it has taken up years of my life of informal and formal research and practice. And so that is I homiletic. It is um, it's my joy and my pride, but it is also uh, my burden. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, like, I, I can't I can't walk away from it when I try. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I think about because one thing that I think is one of my favorite things about listening to you preach is some of the sermon titles you come up with, right? So one of my favorites, and I think one of your well-known ones is, especially at Green, is Joe Bet, right? <laughs> and so I think um, people, and I'll allow her to explain what this is uh, or what how, what how she came up with this, but it's something that has stayed with people for a very, very long time. I can't even remember when you, pre- I, oh, 2014 would have probably been, when you preached it, but that's something that has resonated with people for this amount of time. So can you elaborate on like that creative process some? Yeah. So, um, I identify as a millennial womanist scholar, a faith leader, preacher, higher education administrator and professor. Um, but the key word I'm hoping that people are hearing is that millennial womanist piece. Um, that womanist piece is that I, um, it's a, it's a term that has been taken from Alice Walker that has been expanded over the years. I'm adding millennial in front of it, myself and a colleague, Melanie Jones. She and I have been working and others, uh, Nichelle Gadry and others have been working on adding millennial in front of that word womanist. What does that mean for us? Uh, and we are, at least I am arguing that we are both a wave and a generation for the scholars on the line who are arguing about womanism. Um, but in that, one of the things I absolutely love is preaching scripture that highlights women that are not named. And when we have space to create their narrative, because a lot isn't written about them. And Job's wife is one. Job's wife has always been a part of my, um, quandary of scripture because she really is only given one verse to Job, Job chapter two, verse nine. Are you, why don't you just curse God and die? And, uh, for the Hebrew scholars on the line who can say, well, we know that it also can be one to bless God and die. Sure. All I'm saying is she had one line and we don't know much about her. Um, but what we know about Hebrew culture is that people were equally yoked. They married alike, this and the third. And so I played around with Job's wife and I called her Jobette. And I, it's called, the sermon is called The Untold Story. My first time preaching it, 
I remember it being at Morehouse College, actually, where I was playing around with it. Um, and we had good churchment, 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 right? We had good <laughs> churchment, preachment after that sermon. And one of the practices at Morehouse is they have a sermon talk back where you have to answer questions about your sermon. So that made me start thinking through theologically where I was on this sermon. You don't just take a creative license. Now you have to answer people's questions like, how did you get here? So to answer your question, um, what was that creative process like? I put myself in a place of Job's wife. If I was married to this man, I had these 10 kids and they coming in here telling him that our children are dead and he's losing everything. He ain't losing everything. I'm losing everything, too. And this whole book of 42 chapters is talking to him and his friends like I don't have no story. So let me tell you about what happened on my end. That's how I that's how I approach that text. Well, I'm Job's wife. And this man in here, we done lost our children. He done ripped his clothes, put on his bag, fell to the ground and worship. Now he got boils and over here scraping his skin. And he want to talk to me about this God. No, let me talk to you about this God. Um, and so that's how I approach that. And we get to the end of his story and everybody's like, oh, he got double for his trouble. Baby had 10 more kids. <laughs> Where did they do that at? She had, so he got double for his trouble. He had 10 more children. She had 10 more children. We talking about at least 90 months of pregnancy. My Lord. 10 more children. Wasn't nothing, no twins. We ain't seen no twins. Triplets <laughs> popped out. What are we out here talking about? And, you know, in my mind, everybody in the Bible is a black person. She was with this man. He broke. The kids died. What? No, nah, I don't have time. And I stay with you. This is an episode for Jerry Springer. <laughs> Who were you messing around with me? Like, I'm not. What are we not going to do? See, so this is what I mean. So, like, this is how I approach scripture. Like, I, I say, if that was me, how would I handle that? <laughs> and so this is what helps develop my sermons. Um, like, even now, I'm trying to think to myself, like, who Joseph was like, Mary, you went to church, you came back, you pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Nah, bro. <laughs> nah. You what you talking about? You pregnant and it's the Messiah. Messiah of what? <laughs> Mary. What? Mary, take that. This was a this was a Mari episode. And when I have the courage, I'm gonna preach the Mari episode. It says, Joseph, you are not the father. Like that's what's gonna be me. <laughs> Please let me be in attendance. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just, that's how I approach. That's how I, like, in my mind. Like, even, like, I'm working on something with Eve, right? So, people always mad at Eve. But let's pause for just a moment. So, I've been reading on wisdom scripture and what it meant for it to be considered wisdom literature. And uh, Dr. Kimberly Russell writes about how, you know, these characteristics of wisdom literature aren't just stuck to what we know to be wisdom literature. We look at different stories. We can say that there are wisdom literature pieces everywhere. And I'm like, well, let me go back to Eve. Okay. And when we look at Eve, so the serpent was the wisest animal in the land and chose to speak to Eve. Do we ever hear Adam speak? So the smartest creature spoke to the, the other smartest creature. So I, I'm working on I'm working on something. You are gonna you know, cause with, with, so much trouble. <laughs> people are so I'm working on something. Yeah, people are not gonna know what to do with that at all. No, so I'm working on. So <laughs> I literally put myself in that position. Here we go. Like if like just here's a snippet for the people listening. I didn't ask to be here. You made Adam. He y'all was minding y'all business and he wasn't happy. So you created me in his sleep. I'm here. I'm observing everything. I'm having a conversation. God, you didn't tell me directly the rules of this land. And Adam ain't say nothing either. But this serpent decided to have a conversation with me. So I got questions. So why don't I, why can't I see, why why can't I eat from the fruit of knowledge? Why do do I have to be done? Well. (laughs) And now you want to sit here and say, I turned the whole world upside down. No, y'all want to live in stupidity? (laughs) What are we talking about? 
talking about? Or you know how I feel about Hagar and Sarah. Hagar and Sarah. Hagar is minding her business. <laughs> minding her business. She sees the Lord save Sarai and Abram from their lives with her father, the Pharaoh. She's like, oh, you know what? Let me go live with them. She get over there with the church folk, back to church hole, and realize, church her, and realize, these church Negroes ain't no different than the Negroes on the street. So the Lord gave you a promise, Sarai, that you would have a child. You don't believe the Lord's word to be true. So you take advantage of my body and you decide to make me marry your husband so that we can have a child because you want a child. So you're going to use my body to have a child. You make me sleep with your husband. I get pregnant and now I am pregnant with the possibility that you wish you had. You're angry and you kick me out. What? Where we do that at? <laughs> then, then I have the child. I come back to your house. I have the child. Your promise is fulfilled. You do get pregnant by your husband because the Lord's word is true. And now you want to get rid of me and my son because you're reminded of the poor choices you made to take advantage of me because you didn't believe what God said. Huh? Sarah, take it on somewhere. I would love for you to narrate the Bible, but in modern times. <laughs> I think I think that needs to happen. I don't know how we're going to make that happen, but we need to have like... I don't know what we'll call your version, but we need to have your version. I think that would be such a good Bible. What what story would you want me to do first? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I really, I would have to really think of that. Anyone, anyone I think would be great. Because I think the commentary is going to be what I'm looking for. <laughs> Because like, I'll, be, I'll be laughing about so many pieces. Like in my mind, like at the beginning of Genesis, they talking about something. Like how did it even start? God's like, hey, yo, 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 y'all, <laughs> Athena. Like I feel like God was talking to the Greek gods. You know what I'm saying? Like God was like, Athena, Zeus, come over here. Let's make man. Let's make man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget, put that spade game down. Come over here. Let's make man. Like I feel like. <laughs> See, that, yeah, that like I need that in my life. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm going to get it, but I'm going to get that. I am. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That would be great. Like, <laughs> not, not God's like, air. God's like, air. Bring me that 25 cent icing when you get over here. That's how. <laughs> I am not dealing with you. My, you my last question to you is, um, so we, we touched upon it a little bit about, you know, how a, major, a lot of your church has come from women. And so one of my questions that I did want to ask you, it's going to be a two-sided question, is what can women do to be supportive of other women in ministry? And what would you say to women who are, who are considering going into ministry? Um, so the first thing I would say is get a therapist and heal. Because I think that hurt people hurt people. So I think that... Um, we as women have been given, we, we live into the gender norms and we have to acknowledge and accept diversity and celebrate that. I, I share with you all, my grandmother was the epitome of the Southern Belle wife. Husband never saw her in rollers. And you need to know, if she were alive today, she would have a fit. One, that I was not married with children at almost 40. And she would be like, you're married to these degrees and that them degrees can't keep you warm at night. And I'd be like, but grandma, they will help earn the money to pay the bills. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to pay your bills too. You know, this is what the argument would be. Um, but those same gender norms were passed down to my aunt and my mom. And so now they're like coming at me and my cousin, my, a few of my female cousins, like, y'all not married yet. Y'all just out here living your life. You just, you know, and it's just very interesting. So I would say this, understand that you can have your way of living 
does not take away from someone else's way of living and existing and celebrating who they are. Um, the epitome of my womanhood is not being married or having children and be okay with that. Um, I think we need to heal and work through people have uh, women have this misnomer that their pastor is their covering and their second husband. That's why it's hard for me to accept women in the role of ministry because I ain't your husband. But I can still be your covering, obviously. But even that is a patriarchal thing, a covering. Like, no, we don't need a covering with the father, with the with God, our mother. We we don't we we have an advocate. We don't need, you know, a pastor to do that. God, can you imagine if we need a pastor for everything we were trying to do with God? Mm, um, so I definitely would say heal yourself and ask yourself your questions. Why do I believe what I believe or what I think I believe? Um, and the same thing I said to, you know, for men, what if this is my sister, my best friend, my cousin? How would I, I wouldn't let somebody else talk to talk about them in your kind of way or decrease or delineate or, de, you know, make small their anointing because they got on a skirt that ain't to the length of my liking. Um, and I also want women to remember you used to wear these heels and wear these dresses. Okay. You used to be out here snatched too. So just remember you used to live a life. Um, and don't make the assumptions, you know, all the things that you've experienced in your work environment are the same in the church environment. Give me some grace. Give me some grace and be clear. That part. I, don't, be, I don't want your husband. Now, if your son is fine and single, that might be a conversation. But I don't. <laughs> um, you know, that part. I, think just, I think healing, asking yourself questions um, and allowing others to live their life. Um, you know, be you and celebrate that. Um, so that's 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 the recommendation I would I would give um, for supporting women in ministry. And for a woman who is considering going into ministry, man, I would say this is nothing to run into. Um, Certainly pray about it and understand that ministry is not only preaching. Um, I believe that when we all are functioning in our calling, that it doesn't always show up the same way. So I think nurses and teachers and physicians and um, graphic designers and uh, HR representatives and and mechanics like I think they are all functioning in their anointing like you have the gift that is a ministry that we cannot live without and so to recognize and know that your your answering uh, your call to ministry doesn't have to be preaching doesn't have to be teaching some of us have the gift of hospitality some of us have the gift of encouragement um, those who are scholars your ministry is writing publishing teaching like these are things like we have to open our mind on what we think ministry looks like and it's supposed to look like and for those of us who are black we've always been bi tri multi-vocational so our understanding of ministry definitely needs to be expanded so that's the advice i would give um and i would simply say you know be open-minded be open-minded everything has a season everything has a season um, at one point I thought I would be, I mean, I didn't go to school to become a preacher, right? I went to school. I thought I was going to become a, I wanted to become a juvenile court judge because I wanted to be an advocate for young people. I did not know that my advocacy would show up as a youth pastor or as a, a professor. Um, but that advocacy has not changed. It, show, it has shown up very differently. Um, and so just get in prayer, uh, and ask God to give you direction and I think that, like I, I, I shared on a post a few weeks ago, um, one of the biggest lessons I learned from my Godfather is that when you are at peace with a decision you've made as a result of your prayer life, nothing else matters. So when you've prayed about it, 
and you know God told you this, rock with it, whatever it is. Everybody else will have to adjust. Mm. And I have, now that I ha- now I have follow up questions. So just just one follow up question I want to ask. So you did say you know um, I didn't want to I didn't want to end it on like this heavy note, but you know you did say earlier in the podcast episode that one of your favorite um, Bible verses is "Physician, heal thyself." How do you how do you heal yourself? Um, well, you know, for me, the first step is just acknowledging I was hurt. I used to always just keep rocking like it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I'm like, oh, no, that hurt. And it's OK to say it hurt. Um, so some of the things that Dominique does to heal herself, um, I shut it down. So no social media, no phone. Um I watch my favorite shows, which include tonight is Wednesday night. This is when we're recording everybody. So Chicago is coming on at Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD. <laughs> Hank Boy is my husband in my head, okay, because his little raspy voice. Um, <laughs> Not kids. So I watch my favorite shows. RuPaul's Drag Race is another one of my favorite shows. I've been sad ever since America's Next Top Model stopped coming on. So those are my uh, Law and Order. And for those who are Law and Order fans, are we not excited that organized crime is coming on starting April first? <laughs> oh my god! Okay, and Stabler is coming back. Hello, Saints. We got to be ready. So I watch my favorite shows. Um, I find things that are funny. I still do that to this day. I find something funny every night to watch before going to bed um, because going to sleep off of laughter is important to me. Um, It's so important to me. It's my line name. For those who are listening, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. And my line name is Comic Relief. As you all can tell, I like to laugh and I will be shady and petty and make sure we crack up at any given moment. Any given moment. Um... And you all had the blessed opportunity to hear my voice. But if we are ever in a setting somewhere together and I just give you the face, you're going to laugh. So keep yourself together. Um, So, yes, I do that. I love coloring. Um, I used to do crocheting a lot, but now I don't because that finger action and trying to type my papers is not going to work for me. <laughs> no, I can't. I, one or I, the I other. Can't. And you need to graduate. One or the other now. And I, hello. hello, need to graduate. <laughs> need to graduate. Hello, I need to graduate. Um, I love, oh, I love watching documentaries. I get fired up when I watch um, documentaries. So I'm still fired up about Billie Holiday versus the United States, Alyssa. Okay, have you seen Not it? yet. I'm going to watch it tomorrow. Okay, then, girl, we're not going to talk about it. Okay, well, then. <laughs> Everybody who's listening, Alyssa and I have to come back to do a, a 15 minute <laughs> segment about Billie mm-hmm. Holiday versus United States mm-hmm. because if we put that in conversation with Oprah's interview, baby, we got some things to Ooh. talk about. We got some things to talk about with colorism, women in leadership, when we articulate ourselves, when we say we need help, we got stuff to talk about, okay? So just schedule my 15 minute podcast conversation. We'll around. do. <laughs> okay. Um, I love documentaries. Um, Alyssa is my friend. I will call her to be petty and shady just so I can laugh. FaceTime and be like, girl. Girl, did you see this post? This yes. is out of order. Um, so I do that. I love sneakers and heels. So when I have a little extra coin, I will get a pair of sneakers and heels that have nothing to do with any outfit just because I think they're appropriate. <laughs> That's the best. That's, <laughs> That's actually the, the that best. That is the absolute best. Um, so these are the things I do uh, to have fun. I am learning to cook. Um, I, I That's the one thing I wish I, I knew that I needed to pay attention to with my grandmother's. So I do, I have HelloFresh. It comes in every week and I love following. I'm a Capricorn in type A. So you feel accomplished when you finish something. So I love following the recipe, getting it done and saying, oh, I really did something. I'm going to try something different next week. I'm not. 
I'm not. I'm a Capricorn. I'm gonna keep doing it this way. I'm not. We're not. I'm just not gonna be spontaneous for no reason. That's a lie. But I like to convince myself that I might. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so these are the things I like to do. I love my students. My students bring me life. Um, they are brilliant and bright, and they ask hard questions that make me wonder. Did I mean to go into ministry? Because, I mean, they ask questions. They, Dr. Robinson, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? <laughs> um, I think they were on the ark with Noah. I don't know. Where the dino- what? <laughs> dinosaurs? What? Right. They ask the hard questions. They're like, so is manifesting the same as praying? Because if you're manifesting it yourself, aren't you making yourself a deity? Or are you saying that God has the ability? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Let me think about it. You know, they ask Wow. Hard questions and I'm appreciative of it. So, you know, um, yeah, those are the things that give me life. Um, on a more practical level, uh, I, I tell myself, Dominic, you need at least six hours of sleep. So I wind it down and make sure I get six hours of sleep and at least six cups of water a day. Like things that matter. I cannot stand and preach before people and teach anybody if I don't take care of myself. Um, I lay my edges down. It don't matter how tired I am. I will put a scarf and lay these edges down because you can't preach that God is good up here looking raggedy. Mm. So I lay my edges down. I put chapstick on, saints. <laughs> Dominique, I'm so glad I asked you to be on this episode. I really am. Um, well, Alyssa, we have questions for you. Really? Yes. What is your favorite childhood dessert? A sweet potato pie. Love it. Sweet potato pie. That was your favorite child. Yeah, my aunt. What's your favorite? My aunt Althea would make mm-hmm. me one just for me every year. Regular size or mini? No, no, no. Like a, a whole pie. Girl, what's your favorite dessert to make? <sighs> That's a hard one. Um, I would say cheesecake. Mm-hmm. What is a dessert that you are still trying to perfect? Sweet potato pie. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I think because... Um, I want it to I want it to be reminiscent of my aunts, um, but I want it to be my own. And I think the thing about what I'm finding with my family, nobody measures anything. So it's not like I have a recipe to to say, oh, okay, she used this, she did this. Um, it was like, well, I I use this and then I use a couple of this and then so I I feel like I'm still every time I make it I feel like I make it differently just trying to really get it right because my hope is that when I finally do get it right I can pass that down to my kids or if I don't have kids nieces and nephews something like that so that it just keeps going so I think for me getting that recipe right is something that I'm always trying to perfect so then what parallels from the way you try to perfect the sweet potato pie line up with how your faith development? I think for me, baking in and of itself has taught me so much patience. And I think with my faith journey, I've had to really practice that. I've had to really understand that because I think one of the hardest things as a believer <clears throat> is not getting exactly what you want when you want it, right? not understanding why you're praying for this and it just doesn't come to fruition or it doesn't come to fruition in the way that you expected it to. And so I think understanding that uh, things happen in time, that when they do happen, it's meant to happen. Um, Similar to, you know, sometimes you you bake something and it tastes good. Sometimes it don't taste the way you want it to. 
Um, and so it just reminds me that I can always try again. Um, and I think that that's been really important for my faith. That's what Jesus died for, right? That I can try again. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know? I almost got caught Yeah, up. but... I, I I wish you guys knew how much, I wish I could articulate how much I love Dominique. Um, she's really, I feel like she's a household name in my house, especially because when I think of. That's it, y'all. Only there. Only in the loop. No, no. You're a, you're a household name a lot of places. I won't even go into. Uh, quick story time. This is going to be like an, I'm going to have to drop like an extra, extra. <laughs> episode it's okay but let me tell you so i i help um dominique with um her sermon productions for where she's at right now her chapel services and so she sends me all of the videos and i i put them together and make them presentable send them back to her so she sent me there was this one week she sent me a file and i'm looking at it i'm looking at everything and then i call her and and this is what I love about being friends with preachers because they want you to be themselves, yourselves, right? So I call her and I said, bitch, you preaching at the Proctor Conference? Now, for those who don't know, this is a, pre- a prestigious conference for, for ministers and preachers, right? This host said nothing. <laughs> she said nothing. And then when I call her about it, she's like, how'd you find out? I'm like, oh, you sent it to me. <laughs> Yo, I was so shocked, y'all. I said, where'd you get that from? Who told you that? Who I said, where'd you get did you did, did they post that somewhere? She's like, it's in the commercial you sent me for the chapel service. I'm like, oh yeah, it is. It is. Yes, I am. I'm you know, preaching, it's, I'm preaching and I'm teaching. So like, She's like, you weren't going to say anything? I'm like, who, who am I supposed to say something? She said nothing. It was to the point where I called my dad and I was like, you know Dominique's preaching at the practice conference? He was like, No. He was like, I just spoke to her for like 30 minutes yesterday. Said nothing. Sure you know, but when. I, that doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't go on me. <laughs> I mean, I know they're important, but so for guys and women who are listening, folks, I get so nervous about these opportunities that I don't say anything about them until they're over because like. What if I don't do well? I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be marketed. I don't want it to be shared or anything like that. And then if you do well, great. People can reshare it afterwards. But I just don't share because I'm nervous, guys. I'm just nervous, and that's that's just what it is. And I, I mean, I know people are praying for me, and I know people will love me. And as your dad has said, and and some of my other like those men that I mentioned who have helped me with my ministry, they're like. You don't have to prove you're a preacher. We are inviting you because we know you're one. Like, oh. Just be yourself. But I just still get nervous. I'm like, gosh. So I mean, I'm not saying that, that people don't have their moments because people do, you know, where you don't feel like you're prepared or anything like that. But I just think <clears throat> for those who are believers and those that are Christian in particular, I think if you have the opportunity to ever hear Dominique preach, you're like, wait a minute. All that was in her. <laughs> where did that come from? Um but she's she I am just so honored to know you, um, to love you. You're one of my favorite people. Um, when I think of you, the first thing that comes to mind is how you call my mother's name, which is like is which is <laughs> good. No, no, no. I wanna hear you do it. What do I say? Damn. <laughs> 
Estelle. That's how you heard me say her name for her birthday. On it Facebook. is. That's exactly how you say it. And that's exactly <laughs> what we call her when we go into the house. And she just she just shakes her head and she's like, that girl's so crazy. Because she, she hears you and she hears you and she hears that. Um, but you're definitely a precious gem to this family. We really do love you. I'll call her today just to holler her name. You should. And I, and I guarantee you, she's going to be like, what do you want, crazy? Is what she's gonna <laughs> she's gonna say. But I really appreciate you for coming on. You dropped so many gems today, and um, this is gonna have to be a two part. I'm gonna have to drop like a like an extra something. I don't know how I'm gonna do this, but we gonna do this. <laughs> yes, yes, and and everybody stay on her because we gotta come back to talk about Billie Holiday. Hello. Yes. Oh, and where can people get in contact with you? You have social media. I do um, for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Those are the only three social media accounts I have. I'm not on TikTok, Snapchat, or anything else. It is at Dominique Aisha. So at D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-A-Y-E-S-H-A. 